Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hi, this is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. At BNEF, we talk a lot about the energy transition, the pace of change, the drivers, what the future of an increasingly complex energy system could look like. And today, we have the opportunity to hear firsthand from Martin Wetzeler, the CEO of SEPSA, regarding what they're changing. What are their targets for decarbonizing? What are some of the things that they might be struggling with? And what could the future of their company look like? Now, for background, SEPSA first started over 90 years ago, and they're the first private oil company in Spain. Today, they're across five continents, and historically, their business activities have been focused on oil, gas, and chemicals. So this is quite a pivot. With their announcement of their positive motion plan, SEPSA is now investing 60% of their $8 billion investment budget into sustainable business activities. By the end of the current decade, they want to see a 55% emissions reduction when compared to 2019 levels. So how are they going to pull it off and what is their strategy? Well, BNEF's deputy CEO, Albert Chung, spoke with Martin about just that. They discussed topics including international competition between nations within the clean energy space, SEPSA's 2-gigawatt Andalusian Hydrogen Valley project and the new green corridor between Spain and the Netherlands. And they also talk about transportation and mobility customers and how SEPSA's adapting to meet their needs. And of course, SEPSA's plans for their upstream business. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe to receive updates on future episodes on your device and possibly give us a review on Apple or Spotify. If you want to be alerted on Twitter, subscribe to the handle at podcasts and you'll hear about new episodes that come out of Switched On and also other Bloomberg podcasts. Please note that BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice and our full disclaimer can be found at the very end of the show. And now let's get to the conversation between Albert and Martin. Martin, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Albert, good morning from Madrid. Delightful to be with you and discuss some fundamental topics today. Thanks, Martin. I do want to get your thoughts on this current energy situation in Europe and the opportunities and challenges in the energy transition. But before we dive into all of that, I was hoping you could take a minute just to tell us a bit about your own journey and your career and how you came to be in the position you're in today. Would you mind telling us a bit about that? So I joined the energy industry almost 30 years ago, which is a somewhat scary data point. When I joined, I thought the people that joined 30 years ago should go and do something else. But here I am, and still full of ambition and keen to make an impact. So the, joined in 1995 at Shell, the Anglo-Dutch, nowadays Anglo-Major, and pursued a career that 
took me through almost all the businesses. So I started in the downstream trading business, then in downstream strategy and marketing and, and finance and moved into upstream and, and quickly from the upstream business got engaged on the gas business. And that's where, where I probably spent the majority of my, or of my time in Shell to basically grow, consolidate the gas business and particularly the LNG business which at the time was still, I would say, in the beginning, a bit of a niche business. Nowadays, of course, is a, is a global business in its own right. And certainly in Shell, it's one of the biggest businesses that, that the company has. Uh, and I was privileged to, to lead that business for nine years, three years as an EVP. And then we, uh, you may recall, bought BG Group, former British Gas, who were also a significant LNG company. We combined the businesses and I moved on to the executive committee of Shell where I stayed for six years, running that gas business, but also picking up the newly formed new energies business. In 2016, Shell switched on a new energies business, which it had had before in the 2000s, but basically closed down in 2008, 2009, Uh, started up again in 2016 and so for the last six years. Based in the Netherlands, I ran both the uh, the gas and energy business and the uh, new energies business, which took Shell into offshore wind, into solar, but also into uh, biofuels, hydrogen, batteries, power trading, power sales, etc. To uh, to customers, so setting up a an integrated new energies business there. And then in the course of my, of 2021, the opportunity to lead Sepsa came along, and eventually I took it. Not not just because the amazing city that Madrid is, with its climate and its um, social life, its position in the center of Spain, but but moreover because I saw an opportunity to lead a fundamental and very fast transformation of a company that has as a starting point, and we can talk about it later, a quite traditional fossil fuel-based integrated oil, gas, chemicals business, to lead a transition that would actually, before the end of the decade, turn that into a, a leader in in clean energies, clean, green molecules, and clean mobility or sustainable mobility. And and that opportunity to me was, was irresistible. So I moved by the end of 2021. And I am now 14 months into into that adventure and very, very pleased with the progress and still at the same time quite in awe of what still needs to be done to uh, to get to the, to the end point. Thanks, Martin. Th- thank you for sharing that. It's really interesting to hear how your own story has in some ways mirrored the transition itself in terms of the focus of what you've been working on. Now, as you say, you've been at the helm of SEPSA for a little bit over a year now. Could you first maybe tell us a bit about the company, first of all, for those of our listeners who are less familiar? And then I'd also love to hear what you've learned since joining the company. Anything that surprised you perhaps over that year and a bit that you've been there now? Yeah, so Thepsa is, is a company headquartered in Spain, but with a relatively global portfolio in some businesses. So it has an upstream business in the Middle East and in Latin America. It has a chemicals business that is really is global. It is in all time zones within in nine different uh, countries we produce chemicals and we sell them in, in many more countries. And then uh, Thepsa is a, a downstream business that's quite focused on the Iberian Peninsula, so in Spain, Portugal, but also has a presence in Mexico and Morocco in the downstream. Uh, the company owns the largest refinery in Spain and another big one, both in the south of Spain and Andalusia, and that's relevant when we start to talk about the transition. And uh, we own 1,800 service stations and are significant players in aviation, in bunkering, in, in all the, let's say, the classic B2B and B2C businesses in, in the oil uh, industry. We're, we're less uh, less of a player in natural gas, actually, although we do import the product. So that's that's it's a company with between 10 and 11,000 employees. Last year, $3 billion of EBITDA to give you a sense of the dimensions. And... 
Well, one of the things I've learned is when you, of course, when I when I joined or before I joined, I talked significantly to the shareholders about what what they what, what they were hoping to achieve with Sepsa, how they saw the future, and they very much saw the future or were were, were very interested in a future that would be a, a radical transformation into a transition dealer. Partly because they see, think that's the right thing to do. That the world needs an example of that or, or multiple examples of that. But I would say also partly because uh, attracted by the situation in the equity markets where companies with a predominantly fossil portfolio at the moment, certainly in Europe, attract EBITDA multiples of three and a half to four in their valuation, whereas companies that are predominantly sustainable and, and green attract double-digit EBITDA multiples in their valuations. So if you if you apply that to, let's say, a $3 billion EBITDA, it's the difference between a $10 billion valuation and a $30 billion valuation. And since we're private equity owned, there's an incentive to see, can you get from A to B and can you do it this decade? So with, with that insight and with a shareholder wish, I, I certainly have studied the company ahead of joining and decided I thought it was possible. But I think that the, the lesson that I've learned is that it, strategy is really an art of making choices. And, and too many companies, and I think that was also probably the case in, in Thepsa before, end up doing a bit more of everything. In our sector, companies with such a broad portfolio of chemicals, upstream, gas, downstream, renewables, end up, their strategy ends up being, well, let's grow everything a little bit. And what we've come up with is a strategy that really makes choices that decides to double down, triple down on sustainability businesses. We, we've announced that we will invest more than 60% of our $8 billion investment budget into, in, into sustainable businesses the rest of this decade, creating a company that's more than 50% sustainable income by the end of this decade, and therefore, as a result, shrink uh, the classic business, the fossil-based businesses, by essentially um, running them for maximum value rather than investing in them. And I think that having such a clear choice on the strategy has, has been important internally to to make to align everybody and to give direction to the company, but it's been also been hugely helpful externally because it, it really creates a story about where we're going and a, a story that can be that is easier to understand and that can be explained by all eleven thousand people in the company, but also can be easily understood by people who we deal with in government, in regulatory agencies, in the press, and in the general public. And, and having a story that is focused and that is exciting, I think we're 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 reaping the benefits of that every day, even if we're only at the start of executing story. Yeah, and I think that's a really powerful insight on strategy being the art of making choices. I really like that. And I've always thought that if you say yes to everything, then it's it's not a real strategy. So yeah, half of strategy is knowing what to say no to. So I think that's a really powerful, powerful message. Now, I know you've already touched on this, actually. Um, SEPSA has announced a new strategy in the last year called Positive Motion, which is all about transforming to net zero. Um, You've already started telling me a bit about that, but could I ask you maybe just to map out some of the main pillars, the main components of that? What are the main pieces that make up that overall strategy over the next eight to 10 years? At its core, it starts with understanding who our customers are and what they need from us, what they most need from us this decade, both on the B2B and the B2C side. We want to retain those customers and in a way attract many new customers and offer them decarbonization solutions. Uh, the, the carbon footprint of a company like Thepsa is significant, but 85% of that carbon footprint, if you go scope one, scope two, scope three, so, so let's say life cycle carbon impact of our product, not just our own emissions, but also our customer emissions, 85% of the emissions take place at the, when the customer uses our product, when they, when they, when they drive the car and they, and they use the gasoline or when the plane flies and they use the kerosene. 
So for us to, to have a meaningful and, and impactful impact on climate change and on the energy transition, decarbonizing our own facilities doesn't make much of a difference because it's only 15% of our carbon footprint. We need to do that, of course, and we're doing it. But much more importantly is that we help our customers decarbonize their energy use, which will then decarbonize uh, the life cycle carbon footprint of our, of our business. It starts with understanding what do our customers need to decarbonize, and uh, and it's actually a relatively simple story. We, we think that the, our mobility customers, which are uh, at the B two C side, that starts with let's say the cars that fill up at our one of our eighteen hundred stations, will need green electrons. Will need electric vehicle charging uh, solutions because that's where light vehicles are going by and large. So on, on that segment, we are raining down on Iberia, super fast chargers, so people can, can charge in 15, 20 minutes up to 80, 90% of their, of their battery and go on their life journey again with their EV charged up. Of course, we continue to offer diesel and gasoline as we go on, but, but becoming the leader in super fast charging in Iberia is, is our main B2C strategy. Alongside that strategy comes a convenient strategy because, of course, those customers will spend a bit more time at our stations, let's say 20 minutes on average, and therefore we want to give them options to, to, to make the most of those 20 minutes, whether that's drinking coffee or doing some e-commerce or picking up a meal or picking up groceries or having a meal. There are many, uh, there are many uh, options, but, but we will treat those stations not so much anymore as places where you have to go because you want to fill up your car with gasoline, but where you want to go because there are convenience locations that offer many options while you charge your vehicle. So on the B2C side, it's super fast charge plus convenience strategy. On the B2B side, what our customers need most from us is green molecules. What I mean with that is, is many sectors in the B2B business that we serve are very difficult to electrify. The ones that can electrify will do so because that's the easiest way to decarbonize your energy usage. But there are many sectors such as aviation, such as maritime transport, such as heavy industry, but also such as heavy transport, big trucks driving long distance. For whom it's, uh, or, or the fertilizer sector, the chemical sector, for whom it's very difficult to electrify, but they still need a decarbonization solution. And, and, and for that, they need green molecules. Uh, and we've elected, so again, a choice. We, we could try and serve the industry that electrifies, but we actually believe that, that we are, can be more distinct by developing green molecules. We've been in a molecule business for 100 years. There have been hydrocarbon molecules. Now we will de- develop green molecules. And essentially, there's two main families there. There are biofuels and gases, and there is the green hydrogen family. On biofuels, we want to become one of the main suppliers of sustainable aviation fuel in Europe, and we will start making our some substantial investments this year. We already produce sustainable aviation fuel. And on green hydrogen, we will also become one of the major suppliers in Europe of green hydrogen and its derivatives, green ammonia and potentially green methanol. And in that way, we can decarbonize the, the carbon footprint of our industrial, of our, let's say, B2B customers who need green molecules and our B2C customers that need green electrons. So, 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 so that is broadly, let's say, the growth strategy underpinned by a significant renewable energy investment, which we will not do to sell green electrons to customers or uh, to, to end customers. We will do it for own use. We will do about seven gigawatts of renewable solar, wind, electricity that will go to feed the super fast charging for the B2C customers. And that will be used to make, to produce the green hydrogen and to produce the biofuels and biogases. And 
So it's an own new strategy. We will not significantly compete in the electricity market itself. Not because we, because it's a bad business, but again, because strategy is about making choices. So that's the, that's the growth part of the agenda. And then we will de-emphasize our upstream business. And uh, as you may have seen, we've recently announced the sale of our oil production business in Abu Dhabi. That's about half of our upstream. And in the rest of our upstream positions, we are really not growing, uh, apart from making the investments in the fields that we already have, that makes sense. We are running that business for maximum value. And you will see the, the relative weight of our upstream business decline in our portfolio as we grow the green side and as we run that uh, that business for maximum value uh, going forward. Our chemicals business does have a green agenda, is able to decarbonize and become green at kind of the pace that our energy business is. So, um, uh, so we've decided to keep that alongside our business uh, for now and go on a, uh, also go on, on a pretty aggressive green strategy. Uh, we, uh, our main business is to make LAB, which goes into the surfactants business which eventually people use to wash their clothes or wash their, their hands, etc. And, uh, and we believe that is a sector that will decarbonize early and where green propositions will attract the premium. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So maybe just to drill into some of the opportunity areas there that you see across e-mobility, across hydrogen and biofuels and sustainable aviation fuels, how are you thinking about the relative size of those opportunities between now and 2030? Are they different sizes and different values to you? Um, Do they carry different risk profiles? How are you thinking about the balance of those different opportunities there? They are all different and and indeed have kind of different sizes and risk profiles. If you look at electric vehicle charging, it it is a business that... uh, where there's no question that will be there. The European Union will drive adoption of EV very, very hard in the coming decade. And, and therefore, the, the, the fleet will change to EV. There is no question. The question is a bit how fast. And you see very big differences in Europe. Norway, I think 85% of the cars are now EVs that are sold. Netherlands and Germany, it's 25 growing to 30. And in Spain, it's four. And so the big question, how fast will that four grow to 20, to 30, to 50 and 80? And it's a bit unknowable, but it certainly depends also on the amount of infrastructure available. So we, we, we want to be part of the solution. So we will invest a bit, we will invest ahead of the growth of that EV park, um, which hopefully will in itself uh, trigger growth of the EV park, because we leave, believe it's a bit of a business of a land grab, where it's better to be early than to be, than to be late. And and by creating an, an, an installed base, we can grab a much higher market share in the EV charging business, let's say up to 25% than we have in the fossil business where we are somewhere some, somewhere like 12 to 13%. So it's, a, it's an opportunity for a step change in our market share by, by going early on EV charging. But eventually, the, the, the opportunity is limited by the, the size of the car park in Iberia and the size of our network. So, so you cannot grow that forever. On biofuels, particularly sustainable aviation fuel, the risk profile is is an interesting one. It's not so much the demand because the aviation sector really has only one 
credible near to medium term to decarbonize, which is sustainable aviation fuels. And again, in Europe, will be forced by the European Union to adopt. Uh, many companies want to adopt, but uh, even those that don't want to will be forced by regulation to start buying sustainable aviation fuel. So in a way, the demand in that sector is kind of de-risked. It, it will be there and it will grow. The risk profile in the biofuels business is much more on the supply side. Can you find enough second-generation feedstock that is genuinely sustainable and not food-based but waste-based? Can you find enough feedstock to grow your business? And so we are very, very strongly focused and have been allocating substantial resource to find a to originate in feedstock supply into the south of Spain so we can be a leader in producing biofuels and sustainable aviation fuel. The, the main risk sits on the supply, the feedstock supply side. On the green hydrogen side, it's the other way around. Feedstock is not a problem. You just need water and renewable electricity. And where we are in the south of Spain is the best place in Europe for renewable electricity. We have the best combination of sun, wind, and space. And what I mean by space is the opportunity to build world-class solar and wind parks because there's quite a lot of space in the middle and the south of Spain that we can uh, that, that is usable. It's, the population density is quite low. A lot of sun and wind, so you get very cheap renewable electricity. And, and the other component you need is water. Uh, and, and you don't need so much of it. And actually, by reducing our own use in the refineries, we can free up enough water to grow a very, very large hydrogen business. So there's no constraint on the feedstock side on hydrogen. The constraint there is the market. It's to, to, to actually develop customers who want to buy hydrogen. And that, so that's a very different risk profile. But the good thing is these three businesses all have their own different risk profiles. And so by growing all three of them, you can actually, you get diversification. You don't just depend on one single, one of them working out. One of them might work out better than the others, but by growing all three into a leadership position, we're pretty comfortable. And with the decarbonization drive that we have in Europe, and with the advantage position that we have in the south of Spain in terms of clean power uh, being being the cheapest in, uh, in Europe, we, we, we will have a strong clean energy portfolio in the course of this decade. Maybe just to spend another minute on hydrogen, um, I noticed your very exciting announcement that you've um, you've made around this two gigawatts project. I believe it's called the Andalusian Green Hydrogen Valley, if I recall correctly. We have a coalition of partners, including Fertiberia, the fertilizer company, which clearly will have a use for hydrogen. So my question, first of all, is what did it take to get that project up and running? Clearly having that anchor customer is critical. And then where do you then see that hydrogen flowing more broadly? I presume there'll be other applications for that hydrogen coming out of this two gigawatt project. So where do you see it going into which industries and which geographies? Uh, it's, indeed, it's, it's a very exciting project. It's, it's 10 times the size of the largest hydrogen project in Europe being constructed at the moment, which is in, uh, in Rotterdam, built by Shell, 200 uh, megawatts. So two gigawatts is a, is a major step change in the industry. Uh, and indeed, we are, we, we are fortunate to have a number of things in place. We, uh, as I said, very cheap renewable power and electricity is about 80% of the cost of green hydrogen. So when you have the cheapest renewable power in Europe, you're likely to have the cheapest uh, green hydrogen. So that's one key element. But the second key element indeed is that we have local demand that, can that we can use as a, as a way to get going. We, had the, we have the alliance with Fetiberia. We ourselves, with our two refineries, are significant hydrogen users, and we, we will consume our own green hydrogen. And then we have another, a number of other customers, more in the um, aluminium and, and steel side, around our energy parks in the south of Spain that are potential and, I would say, likely customers that we are having discussion with. So, so 
the, clearly, if, you, if you're going to build a hydrogen valley, the first step is to serve local demand. And we have quite a bit of local demand. But then the second step is to start to, um, to, to serve demand in other areas. And for that, you need to transport the product. And that's not totally trivial when it comes to hydrogen because it, it typically can't use existing gas pipeline systems. And although you can blend it with natural gas, then it doesn't arrive as hydrogen with the, uh, with, with the customer. So there is a plan in Europe, a very detailed plan in Europe, that the, the European Union is committed to to build a hydrogen pipeline system in Europe that will eventually solve that issue. But that's going to uh, take time. The EU says by 2030, that will be very fast, could be in the, in the course of the 30s. So we can't wait for, for that to go. And so for us, the second, uh, after having served local demand, we, we see the best opportunity in, in turning green hydrogen into green ammonia, which is easily shippable. Uh, and then we have a, a number of destinations for that. So we will produce green ammonia. We've done a deal with the port of Rotterdam where we create a, a green ammonia corridor between Algeciras, which is the second port in Europe, and Rotterdam, which is the first port in Europe. There's a big ammonia market in, uh, in Rotterdam for fertilizer and for other uses that we can supply into from Algeciras. And, and we are sponsoring the construction of the infrastructure we need in, um, in Rotterdam to do so. But we are also developing a, uh, a business of selling ammonia into ships. The maritime sector will need to decarbonize, and, and the, the two available pathways are green methanol and green ammonia, both made using green hydrogen. So over time, we also expect to be selling into ships or to sell into other markets. Japan is a market that is very keen to buy green ammonia. And so that will be the second level of customer that we will serve, ship, the shipping industry and the ammonia market globally. And then eventually, as we, as we think of scaling up well beyond the two gigawatts, we would start to count on the pipeline system to take the hydrogen to the, to the north of Europe. So there are, there are a number of layers. The last layer, I would say, is developing a trucking market. We do see that, that for long-distance heavy trucking, hydrogen is, is, is the, the logical alternative. And we have a plan to start constructing hydrogen stations in Spain and then link into hydrogen distribution facilities in the rest of Europe to start sending hydrogen to trucks, which is a, also a sector that's otherwise very, very difficult to decarbonize. So, so we see a, a large market opportunity in front of us, but we need to develop it step by step. It's a really interesting concept to start with the local demand, but then ultimately to think about transforming Spain's inexpensive green electrons into molecules that can then supply the rest of Europe. I think that's a really exciting, um, really exciting concept. Maybe just to zoom out, Martin, just think about the oil and gas sector and the opportunities in the energy transition more broadly. I remember when you were in your previous role, you were at Shell at the time, and you joined me on stage at our BNF New York summit, must have been four or five years ago. I remember you explaining with quite some conviction that you felt that oil and gas companies can and must play a leading role in the energy transition. Now, I assume, and I can tell that that's still your conviction, but now that you're at SEPSA, which is still quite a large company, but somewhat smaller and different in structure, different in focus. Do you feel that SEPSA has a different set of advantages or, or different challenges than other players in the industry? And how do you see that playing into your strategy? Yeah, it's inter when we talk about the size of SEPSA, we always say it's, 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 it's big enough to matter, but small enough to change fast. And, 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 I, and I think that is, uh, that is very true. But that's not the only distinct position that we have. I, I, I do absolutely believe that our position in the south of Spain, and we are the only company with energy parks and with, with logistics, assets, etc., the, the only energy player 
with a position in the south of Spain, so it's not that easy to hop in. It's, it's an advantage that we have and that helps helps us be pioneers in this uh, in this area or helps us be early movers. But I think there's another issue at play, um, Albert, um, which is ownership structure. I have two private equity owners, Mubadla and Carla, who are convinced that this is the right strategy for SEPSA to follow and put their money and governance behind it and allow us to execute a very fast and quite radical transformation of the portfolio and the business. I think what we've seen in public equity markets is that they're very hard to read. And if, if anything, they've been going the other way. I think the most recent proof point would be when BP announced that they were going to reverse to some extent their commitment to reduce their oil and gas production, their share price went up by 20%. So they, they promised to, to, to produce more oil and gas than planned and their share price went up substantially. So I think the, the, the public equity markets at the moment are, are a bit, uh, I would say, polarized. There is a, a, a large but shrinking part of the public equity market that simply wants oil and gas production and oil and gas exposure. And then there's an even larger part of the public equity markets that wants to invest in ESG compliant or ESG related shares. The problem that these integrated oil and gas companies have is that whenever they uh, announce they're going, let's say, from 5% renewables to 10% or 5 to 15%, then the the part of the equity market that wants oil and gas exposure uh, divests because that's not what they are looking for. They want oil and gas exposure. They either don't want these companies to invest in the energy transition or they don't believe in the energy transition, but they're looking for oil and gas exposure. So they divest or at least a portion divests. But the ESG part of the the equity market, that's a very powerful part of the equity market, doesn't yet invest because it only wants to invest if these companies achieve 40 or 50% green energy penetration. So it's a very hard journey to make. So at the moment, I would say the public equity markets reward pure plays. You're either in oil and gas and you develop it and then then you get share price appreciation or you are a green company and you develop that. But there are very few public equity investors that want to invest in the journey. My private equity investors don't want anything else but to invest in the journey. I think there's a real tension there where for the large companies in the industry, it is hard to find a trajectory to, to lead in decarbonization if the equity markets are not willing to buy into that. That's a really interesting and insightful point, and I agree there's something about stability and clarity that's provided by some insulation from the public markets. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I want to expand the lens of this conversation. Just talk a bit about the situation here in Europe, where you and I both live, and also more broadly about the global decoupling and the growth of international competition. But maybe just starting here in Europe and the energy crisis, do you see that the worst is now behind us in terms of this energy crisis? We now have this oil price cap that seems to be doing its job. We have gas storage that seems like it's at a reasonable level after winter. What's your thought on kind of the prognosis? And do you think we've weathered the worst of the storm? So if, if, if you 
points. The, the situation is clearly a lot calmer than it was in um, in 2022 after the war started, and, and particularly this summer when things got really quite stressed, particularly in the gas and electricity markets. I would make a distinction between liquids and gas. I think the oil and oil products markets have settled more or less with the Russian sanctions in place. The oil and products keep flowing. The logistics are a bit more difficult. There are all kinds of issues with the quality of ships that bring the Russian crude and products to their new end customers, etc. So, so I wouldn't say it's, it's completely uh, normal, but it's kind of settled. And so to me, the, uh, the, the liquids markets will simply going forward, again, be driven by supply and demand. And we do believe supply has been underinvested. So oil prices likely to be relatively strong going forward. But that market has kind of settled. And I'm I wouldn't expect there to be any panic moments uh, left. I think on the gas market, Europe has been successful and lucky. It's been successful in attracting supply from other sources and in uh, suppressing demand. But it's also been very lucky that the winter was one of the warmest winters on record. And therefore, the heating demand was so much lower than average. And those two factors have led now to quite a calm situation in the gas market. I think that's, it's too early to declare victory on that. If we get a resurging China demand and resurging Asian demand for gas, which was also quite suppressed last year because of COVID and other reasons, if that all comes back into the market and we have a very cold 23-24 winter, and the gas situation could still be tight. But I think we still have to get through one or two winters on the gas before we can really say that that situation has also settled. And so we'll see how that how that goes next winter. But I think the models now in place to respond are a lot better than they were a year ago. So, so I don't think we'll get to the very extremes that we saw last year anymore, but it could still be tense. But one of the important structural points is that Europe will never again go back to depending so much on Russia when it comes to gas. And therefore, it will become a structural energy importer. And that will impact the long-term gas price in Europe will go up as a result uh, because LNG prices will be higher than the Russian supply used to be. And that will have impact on the gas market, the electricity market and the competitiveness of Europe for for industry, etc. That's really interesting. And I think that's not too dissimilar to the view that our team has over the next year, this question of the rebound in Asia and in China and offset against the potential weather for Europe for the coming year. It's interesting as well to think about how climate change has already impacted that balance by giving us a warm winter, which we're thankful for, but also limiting hydro output last year, which we're less thankful for. And let's not forget that warm summers also mean a lot of air conditioning demand in many places that burn gas for power. So it's not a climate change, not a one way, not a one way street. Indeed, right. That, that's right. And then, of course, you know, the European response, or one of the elements of the European response to this crisis has been to increase its ambition and accelerate the energy transition and try to remove more of the blockers. How do you see that now that we're more than a year into this crisis? Do you think we're starting to see the impact of that acceleration, that that ambition can be delivered? Or do you still see plenty of challenges ahead? So I'd say that the, the repower EU ambitions, by and large, are the correct response to the crisis. And I think it is, to me, for anybody who takes energy transition serious, obvious that the thing to do is to max out on growing green energy in Europe, both electricity and green molecules. And then if that doesn't provide all the answer to the energy crisis, then to develop more fossil supply into Europe either energy or pipeline from neighboring countries, etc., and, and balance the system in that way. So I think the, the ambition and the, the targets are the right ones. What I haven't seen enough of 
is turning that into practice. I would have wanted and expected more of a wartime effort to kickstart the biofuels and green hydrogen industries to, to already be constructing large projects, to already be breaking ground on pipelines, etc., to, to really change the approach and, and remove some of the permitting blockers, but, but also other blockers that, that stand in the way of Europe moving so much more quickly to that to that new energy system. It's, it's, all those ideas exist in Brussels about permitting zones and, and go-to areas, they call them, uh, about moving faster on pipelines and on electrolyzers and on biofuels. But it's taking quite a lot of time for them to, to be agreed at the European level and then for them to find their way down to local legislation, etc., in order for implementation to be able to start. So I think most of the right ideas, correct ideas are around, but driving them into implementation is, is slower than necessary, in my view, and certainly slower than what uh, Europe needs. And, and that still needs work. In the meantime, of course, we've had the IRA in, um, in the US, which gives very significant supply incentives to the market there. And that's um, that, that's certainly a wake-up call for Europe. Europe is trying to respond within its own limits of tools that uh, the European Union has and, 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 and that countries are allowed to have. My sense is that that could still end up in the right place because where Europe at the moment is struggling a bit to copy the IRA supply-side incentives and will, will need to step up further, it has very significant demand-side incentives. In terms of the ETS, the price on carbon, in terms of the, the framework for adopting sustainable aviation fuel and hopefully maritime, sustainable maritime fuels. And that's missing in the US. The US has very significant supply side incentives now. The IRA is very clear, simple piece of legislation, well done. But it still needs demand side incentives, such as carbon prices or other ways to stimulate demand. So I think the race is still on between Europe and US in terms of who will actually be uh, the, the quickest to develop a green energy transition industry. I think that's a really fascinating point. And I was actually going to ask you that exact question of to what extent do you think this narrative around the green investment case in Europe being undermined by the US is, is really true? But, but maybe a follow-on question to that. I think one of the observations is that there's now more of a race around the green manufacturing jobs, the uh, the the industrial production jobs of the of the technology for the energy transition. So I'd be curious to know if you have a view on how important that piece is versus just getting on with deploying projects at the downstream. I don't know if you have a thought on how important those green manufacturing jobs really are. Yeah, I think it's it is interesting to see how we've always seen the energy transition and and uh, and getting to 1.5 degrees as a collaborative global effort or an effort that had to that that, that in order to succeed had to be collaborative. What what we now see it is actually becoming more competitive between Europe and uh, US, between China, Europe, and US. The energy transition is becoming more of a competition than a collaboration. We hope it's both, but 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 I actually think that's probably not a bad not a bad thing because competition in general has brought many good things to society. And if it uh, can bring progress on energy transition, then um, then bring it on. I think the focus on manufacturing jobs is uh, if you take a, a a purely economist view. Is, is actually not so helpful. You, you want to create those jobs in the places where they are most efficient and, and then globally optimized. But politically, to, it is very, very important that we keep the population in Europe and the population in the US and, and elsewhere, so keep their support of the energy transition. So I think in countries that tend to lose a lot of jobs because of the energy transition, where, for example, the car manufacturing industry is a very big employer, and it is in Spain, and it is in, in Germany, 
the, the notion that driving that energy transition hard will create a lot of unemployment could, could actually cause political support for energy transition to fall away. And so from a political point of view, from a political acceptance point of view, being able to sell the energy transition acceleration as something that will also bring jobs to the local economy and that will also bring manufacturing activity and prosperity, etc., is probably not, not actually such a bad idea. If that accelerates the energy transition and it accelerates popular support for it, then I think this, the economic suboptimization of having manufacturing jobs in, in what you might economically call the wrong place may actually be worth that acceleration and worth that public support. So I'm, uh, I'm not too unhappy about it. I think it is one of the biggest risks to energy transition is if it loses popular support. If people start to feel that the only thing it does for them is, is make energy more expensive and export jobs, and then I don't think we'll be able to get it done uh, anywhere near in time. So I'm, I'm actually quite sympathetic to efforts to, to continue to, to raise popular support for the energy transition, even if it is economically perhaps not, uh, not the optimal thing to do. So I'd like to just drill into that point about international competition, really, because I think we're entering this era, you know, first of all, the marginalization of Russia as an energy exporter, which you've talked about, and this broader rivalry between China and the US, China and the West, and concerns about supply chain resilience for the energy transition. And I think I detected from your earlier remarks, actually, a sense of optimism that against that backdrop, we can still accelerate the energy transition. Is that how you feel that even during these complex times that we can continue to push and continue to move faster on that journey? I think, it's, uh, I think it's absolutely possible, Albert. I think my sense, for example, is the IRA may not have existed and Repower EU may not have existed if the current conflict in Ukraine wasn't, wasn't there. But I think it, it has sparked, uh, and, uh, however totally terrible that conflict is, it has sparked a number of important uh, accelerators for the energy transition that I think could have a very, very lasting impact on, on the speed uh, and, and direction of the energy system. It is, it is not all um, easy going, of course, because if you, if you summarize Europe's approach as becoming less or even totally independent of Russian from an energy perspective by driving the energy transition hard, then, then of course, you exchange dependence on, on, let's say, fossil fuels to dependence on materials because the energy transition, the, the solar panels, the hydrogen plants, etc., the biofuels, uh, are all about materials. And, and, and these, many of these materials, you create a dependence on China and, and on other parts of the world. So, you, you, in a way, you exchange one dependence for the other. And, and we'll need to work through the impacts of that. Uh, and so, so it isn't all clear sailing, but I'm optimistic that the system, let's say the, the EU-US-China system, will, will come to an equilibrium that allows those materials to flow and that allows that energy transition acceleration to, uh, to take place. Um, it has been, what has been clear to me is that energy security is also in Europe a very, very political and sensitive issue. It's been quite remarkable last year to see that when energy prices got high, Europe was willing to spend hundreds of billions subsidizing fossil fuel consumption in order to keep its citizens content. And of course, the, you know, the, the European argument for a long time has been that nobody should subsidize fossil fuel consumption. And yet, when, when the going got tough last year, European countries together spent hundreds of billions on it, and they also switched on coal-fired power plants. So that, that to me, has been an extremely important insight last year. Although we all believe in energy transition, and, and certainly in Europe and US politicians will, will say that, when the going gets tough, energy security and affordability quickly come in to perhaps not trump that agenda, but certainly coincide with it. And, and, and that comes to the necessity 
to increase our efforts to make sure that there's not just greener energy, but there is also plentiful and affordable energy as we drive the energy transition. I don't think that was as clearly on the radar screen as before. To me, it just emphasizes the need to, to scale up faster than we have been doing and indeed adopt that, that wartime approach to creating clean energy in abundance so affordability doesn't drive us back into the wrong place. Thank you, Martin. I, I think that's a great place to end the conversation. And I agree the challenge we have in front of us is to keep accelerating the transition, but making sure that we're managing and ensuring energy security at the same time. Martin, I always learn so much when I get to talk to you. So thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with all of our listeners out there. And I hope we'll get to have you back on the show or on stage at one of our summits very soon. Thank you. No, thanks. I'll be keen to report on our progress. We are undergoing probably the fastest transformation of any energy company in the, in the world. And if we can prove that it can be done, as I'm sure we will, I hope many others will follow and, and we can look back on a decade of progress eventually rather than a de- decade of trouble. But thanks for your time, um, uh, Albert, and for the opportunity to be with you. Thank you very much. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.